Hey, open. Welcome to the Temple of Blair. I'm going to open this one with a short announcement. I heard a disembodied voice whisper my name in my kitchen the other day, and it's made me question whether I should stop asking people if they've seen a ghost. Not fucking about. Deadly serious. It happened. Anyway, this is a conversation with Marcus Turner. Marcus has been the head of business affairs for Case Vessels for a number of years now, from the early 90s up until today. So... This is a great conversation, as you might imagine, because when you try and crack some of these Roadrunner nuts, you have to sort of pierce the the outer layers before we get into that kind of the substance about what I'm I like to talk about: business, infrastructure, relationships with bands and brands, and all these things. Marcus is a readily peeled onion. It's an analogy I'm sticking with, and as such, we have the unique ability to bounce around the place because we're already in the territories I want to explore. Anyway, enjoy this. It's a very unique perspective on the business side of Roadrunner Records. One, two, fuck shit up. So when you... I need, I don't know how you come into Case's life or into Roadrunner's life. Can you talk me through that? Because what, um, what Mike Varney said last week was he always took the piss because you... Or you always took the piss out of him because... You always looked so young and it was so out of place that Mike thought that you were an imposter in like a meeting or something like that. It's a bit like that. I remember meetings with, um, with our um, licensees in Southeast Asia. There'd always be droves of representatives uh, from our label in Malaysia or uh, Hong Kong or Singapore and so on. And their first question was always, how old are you? I mean, I don't look young anymore, but I did then. Maybe I was younger than the other guys, um, and certainly younger than Mike. I don't know how old Mike is now, but um, um, I think I probably, <laughs> I don't know, God knows. Um, uh, I, I mean, I was, I was young when I started. I was 23 when um, I disqualified as a barrister in London and had absolutely no work. It was the worst time to qualify. Besides, I'd come, I'd lived in Holland for some time before that which is why I was already bilingual. One of the reasons why I was interested in case when we finally met. Um, but then living in London, trying to make a living at the London bar, and it just wasn't happening. Then out of the blue, uh, my dad, who was uh, living in Holland at the time, said there was this job advertised in the local Dutch or the Amsterdam newspaper for a junior lawyer at a record company that I've never heard about. And I've written the application for you because you need work. I was like, you what? You don't know. Fathers don't write applications. For, I'm, I'm like, I'm 22, Dad. You don't need to do this. So I, I completely forgot about it. And a few days later, I think it was my birthday. Uh, I was living in Fulham at the time, and the phone rings, and it was loud in my room. There were people there, and I, I hear this this voice saying, "Hey, this is uh, it's Says Wessels. You know, it's the case Says thing, right? It depends on where he is, whether he calls himself Says or Case. There's a theory as to why he calls himself." or he pronounces it safe. We'll get onto that another time. Sure. Um, says, yeah, I got your, I got your application and I'm, um, I'm going to be in London in a few days' time. Can we meet? And I thought, who, who is this guy? I have no idea who, what he's talking about. And then, luckily, the penny dropped. During this conversation, which was short, conversations with Case are often quite short, and uh, or they were at the time. Um, I thought, oh, this, this is the guy that my dad, you know, it's the, the job application that my dad wrote for. I'm, I'm obviously getting an interview. So we set this interview up in the London office, which was on Walter Way at the time. I don't know if that address rings a bell, but uh, so a few days later I was there. Um, I'd expected something more pristine than what it was, but it was just a, a house along the road 
um, with I think Mark Palmer had long hair. Uh, there were all these metal heads. I have no idea what I was walking into. No idea whatsoever. Then I walk into the room in this case. Then he says, "Yeah, I got your application, and uh, this is what we're looking for." And then he, he goes through about five questions. Uh, have you heard of a band called Sepultura? No, I haven't. Do you know anything about contracts? Not terribly much. I've done a few divorce um, contracts and a few rental agreements and uh, bits of this and that during my pupilage. Do you know anything about record contracts? No, not a thing. Um, would you be prepared, to be prepared to move to Amsterdam? Hell yeah. Um, and then a few other questions. And after about 15 minutes, he said, well, if you want to jump on the first flight to, to Amsterdam, you've got the job. And, you know, if you, if you think about interviews these days, if, if you want to get a job at Amazon, you probably have to go through about nine levels of, of interviews, psychological tests, um, intelligence, check. all that business, right? And with Casey, it was a 15-minute sit-down, and he just went on a, on, a, on a kind of like a gut thing, even though I had no particular qualifications for the job. Um, and I was in. Wow. And then there was very, there was very short salary negotiation in which uh, – uh, I said, I wanted this. And he said, you're getting that. And I said, I really want this. And we settled on that. <laughs> that was to Amsterdam. He paid 150 quid to, uh, to move me over. Um, but I didn't, give a, I didn't give a damn because it was an opportunity to work for this record label. And it sounded really hot. And uh, I thought, give it a go. Yeah. Hey, good good innings. It seems like the, um, the gut, f- I mean, you'll be in a position to comment on this, but Casey's idea of, Management by gut feeling is something that carried through the duration, right? I think a lot of those kind of conversations, 15 minutes, just getting to feeling someone out is more is more the agenda than, as you say, having a prescriptive job description and do you match these these um, these criteria. He just gets a good feel for people, doesn't he? Yeah, and I think it was his, his power, you know, his, his strength throughout his uh, the, the roadwork kind of uh, history was putting the right people in the right places. And and, and um, that didn't need to, they, he didn't need to have had a long relationship with the person beforehand. In some cases he, he did, and he brought those people in like Costa Fraser um, and others in, uh, uh, after him. But quite often it was exactly as you say, sit down with, a, with, with someone, get a good vibe, um, gut feeling, and you're the man for the job, and now go make it happen. But you could be just as quickly out if it didn't happen. You know, I mean, you could, there are, there are football managers who have lasted um, uh, longer or shorter than, than some of Casey's managers. Um, it was a bit like that. It was sort of like revolving doors with the guys that didn't deliver uh, quick. You were never given much of a honeymoon. I mean, in my, in my case, I came in and I had um, I'd signed a one-year contract with a two-month probation. And on day one, he, he pretty much lands a pile this high of contracts on my desk and says, I need apps, I need those summarized. So I just started reading uh, these things and I had no clue what they talking, were talking about. Um, and every time I'd fire a question off the case, he'd say, I, don't ask me, uh, call Jules. So he had little patience um, and he wasn't get, there wasn't gonna be any kind of induction um, to, to the job. And you just had to make it happen. You had to, you had, you had to find your own way, um, sink or swim. And at the end of the two-month probation, he says he said to me, "Look, it's not really where it needs to be um, in terms of what I expected. Um, so either we part ways now, or we reduce your employment contract by six months." 
what do you want? It's like, that's a great dilemma to put me uh, uh, in. I tell you what, I'll go for the six month option because I'm not, I don't fancy going back to the UK, we'll make this happen. And in all fairness, um, after the six months were up, he said, this is where I wanted it to be at. And there's a pay rise to go with it. So he was very much like that. Come in, do the business, and I'll reward you if you do what I expect you to do. But if it doesn't happen in that short period, you're ooped. Mm. Yeah. Sounds harsh, but that's kind of how it was. Um, but the other thing with cases is extremely loyal to those who work hard for him and uh, deliver on, on, on what he and the, and the, and the label uh, needed at the time. Just to kind of speak to that mentality, the more I hear about case of communication, he isn't communicating on behalf of case vessels. He's, he's communicating on behalf of a corporate entity. And a corporate yeah. entity needs to be kind of agnostic in the way it deals with itself. And it's yeah. up to the person mm -hmm. on the side of the table to take that personally or not. And it, I, yeah. I guess it's it's all part of that judge of character, isn't it, really? But you say you, you we come in and you've, you've got a probationary period, you're immediately sent to Jules. Is this how the dynamic's happening? Is is Jules still a head honcho at that point? But Jules is in charge. Look, I mean, Jules were, worked, uh, had worked for Case Run for about five, maybe 10 years, uh, probably five before I came along. And he was the, you know, he was working, wasn't working in-house, he, was he had his own firm. Right. Um, the, the law offices of Jules Kurtz. But he, he did all of Case's contracts in America and outside. Um, but it became too unwieldy at some point. He just case needed a, a man on, on, you know, on, on um, the European side. But because Case didn't want to get into the nitty gritty of explaining how contracts worked, and he didn't have any time or pay, patience uh, necessary for that, it was go to Jules. He explained to you what cross collateralization means, or pipeline monies, or um, recoupment, and all that. Those terms that are, you know, way out there for anyone coming into business. So he was, um, I kind of, I suppose I, I report, certain reports to Case, he was my boss, but there was a kind of like dotted line to, to Jules right. and Jules was kind of like coaching me through this process. And Jules had all the time, time and patience in the world. Well, it, he was billing as well. But um, I think the first year, I mean, so, so the story goes, um, Jules didn't charge Case anything. He's just like, I'm going to do this because we work together and I believe in your label and we're friends. And I'll help you on, my, on your way. Uh, so for the first year in America, Jules did all this work and, and didn't charge him a dime. Right. Okay. Let's unpack that because that's there's a big blind spot as to how the US works prior to the office being there. Prior to say Doug and Monty and Steve Ricardo and all that gang being there in New York on Lafayette, everything behind that is kind of a blind spot. And I'm slowly because I did the video, the 1980 to 86 video, and obviously as things. You know, I'm governed by Sod's law, which means as soon as I spend six weeks cranking that out, then all the information floods in that I could have used six weeks prior. When we can, I know Case and Jules work together in the dealings with Polygram. Um, when they were working in Polygram, I'm sorry. When they were working in Polygram, I mean. I don't know. This is this is the question. So I know Case worked at Polygram. Was Jules at Polygram, or was Jules contracting for Polygram as part of Jules' um, laws for, law firm? Yeah, I, I, I'm not, Case Case and Coase worked together at, um, I think it was RCA, Case and Jewel, who? Uh, Coase to Fraser. That's how you pronounce it. Nice. Coase, yeah. It's not Coase. De Vries. 
Close to Vrezen. Um, close to Vrezen, yeah. Um, so there was a connection there between Case, Coase, and Jules. Jules was the, 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 the head of business affairs of the label and that they were both working, or three of them working for at the time. Mm -hmm. Subsequently, Jules went um, and started his own firm. Because I remember Coase uh, having loads of anecdotes about Jules as well, and that was all pre-Roadrunner. Yeah. So that, that was kind of like a, a triangle um, happening before the label started. Yeah. And when the label did start, Jules said, look, I'll, I'll help you um, get going. Because it, if Mike Vanister will be believed, the American connection with Roadrunner does start 82 with um, Merciful Fate. Case rang Mike Varney and said, I've got this EP, Nuns Have No Fun, and we're looking for a licensing opportunity or something like that. And Mike was too, uh, he wasn't quite at that point yet, I don't think. Um, and so turned Case down for, and then obviously three years later, they had quite a, a, a flourishing relationship, did Roadrunner and Shrapnel. But Jules was the man on the ground when it came to the US repertoire up until the office was opened, which is how Carnivore happened and how Whiplash happened. So I'm th and also what hasn't been said yet is Jules's reputation outside of Roadrunner and outside of Polygram, which is, I believe he was Aussie's lawyer. I believe he was a low. Basically, if you had like the, if you think about the 80s metal scene and the excesses and all the cool rock and roll stories, Jules is somewhere over here in the background for them all. Is that my, that's my understanding. Is that about right? Yeah, he was, um, yeah, he's certainly one of the forerunners in the whole uh, legal uh, rock representation business. Mm. Um, I think I, one of the times we spoke earlier, the, he, he told me that he was Grace Jones's um, attorney or manager at some point. Mm -hmm. So he, he said to me, you know, Marcus, do you, do you remember when Joe's Grace, Grace Jones was um, was doing great and she was in the Bond movie and she was selling records? So yeah, I remember that, Jules, but that's when I was her manager. You remember when she was nothing, everybody forgotten about her? Yeah, I kind of remember that as well. That's after she fired me. That's kind of how Jules' reputation, I mean, representing Grace Jones, that, that's Premier League, right? I mean, that's, so he was my mentor, and it was, it was great to be learning from a guy, guy like that. About uh, six months, maybe a year into my tenure, Case brought in another attorney called Glenn Davis to work in-house in the Amsterdam office. So Glenn um, was, or had been a Sepultura's lawyer and was a very skilled attorney, so skilled that Case thought, I need him to not be representing Sepultura any longer because he's a tough negotiator and a ball breaker. I need him to be working for me. So we brought in Glenn Davis, um, who was really my, uh, became my mentor. So this is about nine months into my job because I, I was, I mean, seriously junior, 23 in this big, uh, the big man uh, league. Um, and I certainly needed a little, a little bit of uh, needing here and there. So uh, Glenn comes into the Amsterdam office um, and we worked the business affairs department uh, together, me largely reporting to him. Uh, soon, soon after that, Costa Fraser was brought in as well to bring a lot more structure to the label. This is around the time that KSD was uh, mega successful. So we were selling a million records, there was money uh, pouring into the company, we were signing bigger acts, the budgets were getting bigger, the, the, the tour support was getting bigger, the videos were getting bigger, we needed more structure and Coast was brought in at that, at that point. Right, so, what's his title coming in? Is it business uh, affairs? 
You mean Coast? Yes. No, he, I think he came in as, as uh, managing director. Right, okay. Yeah. Director of It's not often reported. I couldn't see I know there's a lot of like, when I read my billboards and things like that and, and uh, radio and records, it's usually like a little snippet on the side and it says, Coaster Phrase has joined Roadrunner to help run the company. And it's like, right, yeah. well, that's not very helpful. But you've just yeah. contextualized that quite nicely for me. No, he's empty. He was empty, and he um, he wasn't with the company for very long. I mean, I think it lasted about a, a year, maybe a year and a half. But he brought so many kind of uh, structural, organizational, uh, administrative changes to the company. Um, it was a hell of an achievement to to go from this independent that was um, doing okay with a certain uh, income base. Uh, to this independent with a massive income base, and we, you know, we had to get organised. Otherwise, we we're just going to like drown in, in the success. And in that year, he he brought structure. He brought in um, a, a CFO from um, from who'd been our accountant in America, uh, Ian Flint, a very talented accountant who'd worked out uh, as as the outside auditor for for probably not long after case set up. Um, so five, six years, and then he, he was brought into the Amsterdam office as well. So now we've got Case, Creative, A&R, Coase, uh, the managing director, uh, structure and um, sort of uh, organizational, the, the whole setting up the corporate side, and Withian Flint setting up the sort of fiscal structures of the company going forward as we became uh, bigger and bigger. Um, meanwhile, Jules was, was still in America. Yeah. Um, doing his thing although the american outfit was getting so uh side you know so so sizable in the early 90s as well with bringing the business affairs there too yeah okay. and jules's role became sort of more and more um well reduced in effect right okay so this is the time when between chaos ID and typo yeah. Obviously, that's the year it's 1993 bloody kisses and chaos cd yeah. but obviously typo is yeah. the one that is elected to be the gold record. Um, right. Is there any, I remember who we were spoken to on this. I spoke to a few people on, I mean, the typo campaign, this is the threshold moment, as you said, when we, it becomes almost unsustainable in, in, in terms of how uh, the label would manage itself. Therefore, and you've kind of answered my question there in terms of structure being built in to manage the uplift in revenue, business, correspondence and presence and all these wonderful things was it Case's ambition to have a gold record as a, like almost like a menu item? As in, it was, he came into the office one day and it was like, now's the time, lads. Let's mobilize and get the gold record. Jim Salaby, Doug, Monty, give me a list of like viable artists for this to happen and we'll push it with IRD and we'll push it with sales and we'll push it with Mark Abramson in, prom in the promotional capacity. Yeah, look, I, mean, I think that's I think that's really how it went, uh, guys. Let's look at the roster and which one of these um, albums can can go gold or better. And the well, the spotlight came on came on Typo. And then I, I remember one of the interviews with Stefan Kuster, him saying, our, "You know, he remembers our case would rally the troops." That's absolutely true. He would go, "This is going to be gold, uh, come hell or high water, uh, we're going to make it." And everybody just instantly um, embraced that view and that plan and that dream and it just happened well it didn't just happen but it uh, it, it happened in that in that record and, and because we were such a small outfit um there were maybe 80 or 100 of us at the time it was just a massive massive achievement 
to have taken that record and, and become so successful. And every room you went to in whichever of the labels or countries, that record was just blasting out all the time. <laughs> it's one of, the, one of the few records I probably know all the lyrics on because it was just nonstop on. And, and so everyone in the company just were uh, you know, working their guts out to make that happen. It was brilliant, brilliant. But it started with Case going, okay, which one of these can break? And then let's go for it. Was that the thinking formed by KLCD in any way? Because I know that he was so confident in KLCD being a success that there was a party at a castle in Wales. Yeah. So did you think, all right, we've clearly, we've identified a product which is going to be successful and it was successful. So there is a, we're clearly getting, the A&R arm of the company is no longer as much of a gamble as it used to be. Because like in the early 80s, it's not like Case would sign anything. There, were, there had to be some sort of repertoire in the band. But it was like 20 acts a year, let's say. Let's, I, I don't know if it was that. I think it was between 1984 and 1986. There was about 20, 25 direct signing records, all of which were kind of gambles because you didn't quite know how they were going to go. But KLCD is probably the clearest example of Case going, right, this is going to be massive. Let's throw a massive party in Wales and let's have like a big, make it a big deal. And it was correctly a big deal. Do you think that might have informed the decision to just go, now is the time? Yeah, because he was getting, uh, certainly, he was also getting more expert, expertise on the different departments, be it radio, sales, marketing. You bring those minds together. And if the sales guy is going, I know I can sell X many, X thousand records. And the radio guy is going, I know I can get it on these stations. And the marketing guy is going, I know I can do whatever. Um, and you've got the international uh, rollout as well, where you've got the guy in Germany saying, I can you know, uh, get these guys on the road. And it all comes together. If all these disciplines, like in the case of um, Typo or after the success of KOCD, as you say, come together and go, yeah, this is another one of those records that we can do the same on as that. Then you have a platform, a basis, um, which almost becomes like, a uh, well, I wouldn't call it scientific, but there's, there's kind of like a, a knowledge basis that um, can determine those choices. You can't do that with every record, but with, with, the, with some records, when every, all the departments are, um, are you know, uh, have the belief, then it's more likely to happen. And after KSD, um, look, KSD also, I mean, worked in the major label system, so he knew how records, how to break records. He'd been around people who were breaking pop records, rock records, um, uh, on, on, on several occasions. So it's not like it was a mystery to him how to break a record. Mm -hmm. KOCD just brought more talent to the company on those different departments. And those guys working together were able to create bigger records. Mm. And it's a, it's a matter of credibility as well. That's one of the bottom lines, isn't it? That's what the gold record brought. And I guess that's what KOCD brought. Did you go to the party in Wales? No, I think that was um, it's probably about two weeks after I joined the company or two weeks before. I, I just missed it. They weren't going to take the, the rookie out there anyway. So um, I, I heard about it, but um, no, I wasn't there. I remember, but my first night, my first day at the office, September 8th, 1993, Sepultura were in town. I mean, just an amazing, amazing fortuitous. So uh, Frank Strobler, whose name you've uh, no doubt heard, and maybe you've spoken to Frank, Not yet. says, Hey, Marcus, it's a great day to start because Sepultura is in town tonight. And I was like, hang on, that's that band where Case asked me, Do you, have you ever heard of them? You really need to go to the show. And of course, 
I did. Um, and before several times, I'd never been to a rock show in my life. So I go to this rock show and the first band, I can't remember the names, but they stood there in their DMs and in the noddy and their guitars in front of their, um, well, private parts. And I thought, what the fuck is this all about? And this is the, um, this is the support act before Sepultura came on. And when they came on, this unbelievable wall of sound um, hit me for six. And I thought, ah, this is now the business I work in. I fucking love it. <laughs> so no, I wasn't at the, uh, I wasn't at the castle, but uh, I was at the Amsterdam show in uh, 93 at the Paradiso. I even, um, I even emailed the castle. And said, "Was there any? Is there anyone there who was working there at the time? Because <laughs> it must be somewhat unorthodox, especially for a Welsh heritage uh, site, to be hosting that kind of thing." But I'll, I'll uncover more, I'm sure. So, yeah. as, as your role matures, I say we're into sort of like '95, and we're seeing an expansion and a um, a new infrastructure being rolled out to accommodate this new world that Rodron has entered into. How has your day to day been affected? Have you got now, because in business affairs, in a junior lawyer capacity, I imagine you're interfacing with band managers and trying to get them over the line into the company, um, getting projects rolling and things like that. Now that we've got repertoire and we've got a gold record, do you have any cocky buggers coming in saying, oh, I know you guys, Rodron, you've got coffers out of the, the wazoo. Let's, go, let's, sign a, let's sign a million dollar deal. Um, yeah, well, look, Glenn, Glenn Davis, back, back to Glenn, stayed with the company for, for a year. This is, this is not a sort of, um, uh, it's, it's starting to sound like everyone that came in around my time stayed for a year, coast Glenn. But Glenn wanted to go back to LA. Amsterdam, um, I don't know, maybe didn't suit him entirely. But I sucked all the knowledge that I could out of Glenn in that year. Um, and after he left, um, I was sort of, it, it was not like a sink or swim. I mean, I, I sort of knew what I was doing, largely speaking. Um, I was, was pushed more to the fore by, uh, by Case in, in, in doing uh, deals. Although by then we had a business affairs in America. So I was more European, you know, so do, doing European deals. Um, the, the Amsterdam a &R, uh, what the Amsterdam recording contracts, the French contracts, the UK and, and so on and so forth working with outside lawyers in, in those different territories, um, all the international licensing, all the international distribution um, fell under my sort of remit. And um, uh, I don't know if that answers your question. No, no, totally, totally. Um, who was the toughest one to work with in terms of, um, in ter in terms of an act that you're trying to get over the line? Whoa. Um, <laughs> Damn, I don't know. Um, some of the Dutch, some of the Dutch acts were uh, um, not that easy to work with. I mean, you know about our, our Buddhist, Buddhist uh, sort of like adventure. Yeah. Trying to bring a bunch of pop artists into the Roadrunner uh, um, uh, stall um, was was a bit of a challenge. Um, I don't know if we the last time we spoke, there was, there was we had this company called the All Blacks. And that was the rights company, the All Blacks BV. Um, called because Case was a, a rugby fan after his period, two years living in New Zealand. And one of the negotiations with one of the, with one of the Dutch pop artists um, almost went awry when he said, I'm not signing a deal with a racist company. So, uh, what's, I don't get it. What's, what's the point you're making? He says, well, your company's called...
all the blacks. I'm not signing with, with those guys. So after explaining to him that we were not, uh, we hadn't called the uh, company for any other reason than uh, a uh, national rugby team, it was a little easier. But um, yeah, some of the, some of the, I don't know, I can't pinpoint one particular actor who was very difficult to work with. Um, but we, they were all difficult to, to get on board. There was, the, of course, the enthusiasm to sign a deal with Roadrunner, but at the same time, our contracts were tough as hell. You know, you've heard before we had five, six album deals. The options were on our side. The recording costs were relatively low. Um, they, they grew over time, but they weren't, you know, sort of uh, amounts of money that you could retire on. We didn't pay the artists uh, huge personal advances, so they had to sort of make the record and survive until they hit the hit the road, hit the, uh, on tour. Um, so getting out, and, and we were, you know, we were tough. If if an artist wanted um, a different a different kind of packaging outside our standards, we'd make them pay for it. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if all these things should go down in the in the, uh, uh, in the documentary, but um, we were we had really tough contracts. Uh, this, I think it is important, though. I think it is because the question that needs answering. And this is this is one that I don't think I don't think you can answer it. I don't think Case can answer it. I don't think Monty or anyone can answer it. Is did they put up with that because Roadrunner could do something with a certain kind of band that no one else could do? So you quite happily sign over, you know, the, the seven al uh, seven album deal and the option in the publishing and all that stuff. Were you happy to do that because it gave you a much more viable chance as a band than if you'd go to say another another metal indie? Yeah, um, that's the reputation at this point. So we, I mean, we invested um, more heavily than other than other uh, rock indies. I'm sure about that. I mean, the case was the first one to say we need a we need a better video. It's going to be more, it's going to be more quality. We put the band on the road. Pay hundred thousand dollars for them to go and tour the world. I mean, this is recoupable tour support. But we were investing more money in bands than than anybody else uh, was. I think at the time outside of kind of like the the, the major scene, but they weren't signing kind of bands that we were signing. So, yeah, we had tough contracts. And I think you're right. They signed with us because the, the chance of them um, gaining some level of success, also with the team that was, was behind it all, was higher than, than the alternatives at the time, who might have been doing a record with them, but didn't, um, you know, didn't have the merchandising wing, didn't have the publishing wing um, to, to kind of like give, give the whole platform uh, um, from which a success could, uh, could follow. I think it's worth understanding a cash flow situation from from Roadrunner as an infrastructure as well, because let's say you've got five bands and they've done the the first album, it's five you know thousand dollars to record it, um, and they get dropped, and they're thinking, oh right, Roadrunner are cheaper, they didn't push us or something like that. I think it's worth understanding, and this could be some this is this conception I've got, a perception I've got. It's not necessarily true, but if you're say in your position or in Case's position, it's Okay, well, we've got this band that we've recouped five thousand dollars from, or not recouped it, recouped it yet, who aren't going to generate enough revenue to make it worth our while to continue this relationship. So I can either drop them, or I could drop Marcus, or I could drop Monty, or I could drop Coase, or I could drop these guys who are on a salaried position, but are also spinning ten other bands that might make the five thousand back. So it's it's, I think it's worth shining a light on what's happening in the company as well. Because a lot of the time, the perception is, the record label is, Fat Man, Cigar, Desk. 
that's the dynamic and it's not quite that simple does that make sense yeah, just, I know I, I'm unpacking these things as, as I have these uh, interviews it definitely makes sense Look, we were the, I think we were the only uh, indie uh, at the time I'm talking mid 90s who had offices in seven eight major territories and we were we were you know where we were we were in Germany we were in the UK we were in Japan who had a label in Japan at the time um, we were in obviously in America Canada um, uh, we had we had strong relationships with with part we had an office in, in in Brazil at some point strong relationships with our distribution partners some of them were joint ventures so you signed a record not only to Roadrunner in America um, but you largely knew that your record was going to be distributed all over the world mainly by uh, Roadrunner companies and a Roadrunner um, um, a Roadrunner team. Um, in, in the major territories. That was, that was a, um, to use, for lack of a better term, a unique, a unique selling point at the time. Next to that, we had these great partners um, in the, call it the, the, sort of the second, secondary territory, like we were strong in Poland and we were strong in, um, in other uh, distribution territories um, that could well have become roadrunner territories with an, with, an own, with an own office at some point in time. It might, you know, it didn't happen in some territories. But I think that was, um, the investment the case uh, uh, was making over and above what other people were doing at the time as well. And it was it was a, a brave thing to do. Opening an office in Japan costs a hell of a lot of money to not just to, to get structured together, but you got to put you have you have people on the ground. Case was flying out there once a month or whatever it was at the time. We were having local investments in in, in marketing that was happening in eight nine countries uh, all over the world. And he was putting the best rock people in place. That's what you signed when you signed a roadrunner deal. So with all the, and back to your, your earlier question, with all the kind of call it negatives of um, a ball breaker deal that you're signing, you were getting all those benefits or potentially those benefits by signing with us. That's almost the soundbite, isn't it? Yeah, you got $5,000 isn't a lot, but $500,000 went into all these territories and hiring the staff so that you'd have a, uh, a network and a presence in all these territories. Yeah, and that's really. I mean, we weren't. The company wasn't that profitable until sort of post KOCD. And Case set up the company in nineteen. I think he registered the company in nineteen seventy-eight. Uh, started proper in nineteen eighty. Um, was um, investing and investing and investing. It wasn't. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't lucrative for a, a good ten years or not more. Afterwards, I mean, he re- remortgaged his house and he, he really dug deep. You know, he was turning over all his. Uh, pockets just to to make this work. I think um, you know. I don't, I don't know how he managed to uh, remortgage. I mean, I uh, try and remortgage your house. Go and tell your wife. I'm, I'm starting a business. Uh, we're going to have to sell the house and move it to something smaller because I I believe in this so strongly. So for years and years and years, he just invested and he dug deep, um, and the returns started to come after '93. But he wasn't there yet because '93, '94, '95. They were relatively good years, certainly the KSD year. Um, and then America was happening, but the overhead was growing as well. So you don't just have a gold record and then you're profitable. No, th- th- this, those two things are in balance. We had uh, a number of lean years as well. I mean, I remember times when I think it was even uh, in, in the Costa Fraser period. It's like, guys, we're not going out for dinner anymore uh, unless you're invited. We've, we've got to be tight on expenses. We really, yeah. I th- I think we might have been even been behind the uh, the term lean and mean. That's that's exactly how we were. Um, you know, the offices didn't look great. Case didn't care about that. You know, all of the money we make 
has to go into recordings and paying staff. Um, who gives a damn whether we've got a fancy coffee machine? And, and nobody else did, actually, for that matter. In, in the office that I started in, in, in Amsterdam, the Barsis, there, um, the coffee machine consisted of a, a sort of um, a container with a filter on top. And people would just like chuck a bit of uh, filter coffee and then you pour hot water over it. And you do that for the entire morning. I mean, it's disgusting. That was the coffee machine. And because there was such a mess left in the kitchen, by uh, it was it was completely male dominated. It was it was so unwoke you wouldn't believe it. Uh, I think it was one one woman in the office um, outnumbered by twenty blokes. So you can imagine what the kitchen looked like. And these were metalheads as well, um, young young metalheads. It looked like shite. So Case at some point just took the container with the coffee filter on top and slammed it in the dustbin. Um, because he was so sick and tired. So we had no coffee machine for uh, for the longest time until someone dared to buy something that um, that uh, produced some kind of coffee. So the money never went into flash uh, surroundings, the fancy cars, nice parties, uh, or even big bonuses. It just all went into making the label bigger and better. I have a theory about this, and uh, this may be way before your um your time or before your interactions with case but and i make this point on on that eight that video the 80 to 86 video i keep calling it the 80 to 86 video and not the documentary because i know that it's getting redone <laughs> so i wanted want it to be a separate entity but in the disco era as we call it 77 to 80 polygram creeps polygram is, is like, like has a scope creep um casablanca records is famous for limos and cocaine that as a and this is when case is working in in the major infrastructure like in the, in the major label world i think and, and again i could be full of shit it's that excess and that blow on the profit and loss sheet which informed a lot of this ethic yeah it's because he saw it come crashing down he saw the bubble burst after disco and, and went well you know what you shouldn't have paid out the your ass for limos and yachts and shit and then maybe you'd still be a viable business proposition yeah well yeah I mean, and, and don't forget it was his own money i mean it was the remortgage of his house it was his saving he put everything into this label so his money was at risk um and so he had to be prudent he had to be careful because if it didn't work he'd have no house he'd have no uh, no livelihood because uh, he wasn't going to be able to go back into the major label system in any hurry because that was kind of a, a closed door and he didn't want to go back, so it had to succeed. And it can only succeed if you're, if you're, you know, balancing the successes with the investment. And the success has to slightly uh, um, out outweigh the the, uh, the investment um, until we got the, the hockey stick. The, the hockey, the KSD was selling the hockey stick, and until then it was, in, you know, slow incremental growth. Um, but and he just stuck with it, stuck with it. Um, so yeah, but so by 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 necessity, you had to be prudent. It had to, yeah. it couldn't fail. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting when um to speak to that in a way we obviously we're in ninety three through ninety five. It is death metal. It is metal. It is thrash metal. It's all these things. Then we see a diversification, and you mentioned the booty the Boudiste acquisition. Now we've spoken about that before, as in between me and you personally. Yeah, but just to contextualize it and take a step back. Case was sometimes, or Roadrunner as an entity was sometimes in the business of acquiring some of the weird and wonderful 
Budisk wasn't weird and wonderful. Budisk was fairly poppy, right? It was fairly pop, pop label, yeah. yeah. Pop and what else? And hardcore dance. Uh, yeah. Pop, yeah. They're kind of Euro, the boom, boom, boom type of. Yeah, Euro trance. Yeah. And whatnot. Yeah. What else did uh, Roadrunner acquire, which might surprise me? Uh, I know Third Mind. Acquire? We didn't, well, I mean, uh, do you know we did a Sir Cliff Richard, Sir Cliff Richard record? Didn't know that. Ah, well, this was probably what the fuck. This is probably around the time we did the uh, the the um, Maloko the uh, the Echo license. Uh, right, okay. Late nineties. Um, yeah, it must have been 1998-99. Around about that time, we had one. We had Sir Cliff Richard's uh, Christmas single, um, which shipped something like 120,000 singles in Germany, um, of which maybe 70,000 came back, but uh, forget about that. Um, so that was a Sinead O'Connor one as well, wasn't there, in 2003? Yeah, I think this might be when, when Wally, uh, Charlie Prick was working for us and Wally had not rejoined us yet. So we had this period when, um, you've come across the name Charlie Prick? Nope. No, get ready for some clacking where I'm typing it in. Charlie Prick. Um, so Charlie was a pop guy. He'd, he'd managed uh, Boney M and uh, Telly Savalas and um, uh, Backstreet Boys in Germany, uh, part of the Jacksons family. Um, so he was some big league management and had been involved in the German label system. So sh look, shortly after Rudisk, we had a hit with a with a record called "I Want to Be a Hippie," which saw something ridiculous, like a million singles all over Europe. Uh, reached number six in the UK charts, number one in, in Holland. I think it was even number one in Germany. I Want to Be a Hippie was one of these happy hardcore uh, tunes. Um, so, because we had this uh, sniff of chart success in Germany, uh, that that smelled like more. Um, and Charlie Prick was an expert. In, in how to get chart success in Germany. So we brought him in. Wow. Um, and, and he was living in Holland at the time. He came to work for us. Charlie was an A&R guy. Well. He was Jack of all trades, management, A&R. And he was uh, the guy behind uh, bringing in um, a to Roadrunner, Moloko being one of them, the Echo label. Um, and Cliff Richard was, was part of that. We did a Human League album. We had... Um, um, we had um, Paul, uh, um, a John Oates album at some point, so we went right. really into the sort of pop direction with uh, diff differing degrees of success. But mm. uh, back to your question, um, acquisitions, surprising acquisitions. Yeah, um, a classic, a classical music label called Amerigo Classics. Um, so you know, case not. A not a not no link to a Mergo Roger or Mergo. No, um, that was an American label, right? Roger and Mergo. I think there was a British one as well. No, there is, there's no link to that. No, it was it was Mergo uh, Classics. Um, Case gets into classical music, and we acquired a few classical um, music catalogs um, that uh, didn't. I mean, you know, Case is a lover of of, of opera and classical music. Um, but there's not much money to be had in classical music. 
and uh, classical music recordings are um, kind of expensive and you can't get five album deals with uh, orchestras. So that was short lived, but that was a surprising uh, sort of like a sidestep on the yeah. tangent. Interesting. I can't, you kind of nailed it with the Cliff Richard reference though. And you, you, I think you wanted the uh, the Office of the Queen as well by referring to him uh, by his proper title. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting period as well when you see this this expansion. I, I always ask this, and I know what the answer is. It's why the move from metal? Because we knew at this point this was the brand, and we knew this was the strength of Roadrunner. Yet when we look to say 95 through to about maybe like the Slipknot era, that you have your flagship acts, <clears throat> even Sepultura post Max Cavalera. Um, Life of Agony is still putting out records as a Fear Factory. The big flagships are still going, but the things that we don't hear about are things like Screaming Mother, uh, Garage Fuzz, Bennett, um, Kong. There's loads which obviously no one's ever heard of because this was this was Roadrunner flexing. Yeah. UK A&R. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so why was, was this just diversification to try and get more traction and more revenue elsewhere? Or was this part of the design to be effectively a one size fits all outfit? Uh, it was a bit of both. I mean, we, we wanted, um, and in case after having had success with, um, you know, the Sepulturas and, and Typos and, and um, commercial success with bands like Machine Head and, and Doggy Dog. We were in the charts, we're on the radio with, with a band like Doggy Dog. That smelled like more as well. And, um, yeah, to move from a Doggy Dog to a Bennett, which is really just kind of like an, a, an alternative pop act uh, in, in the UK, was not as large a step as it may have appeared. It's not, we're not going from extreme metal to pop. There, there's kind of like a, um, a trajectory there to get, to get there. Mm. Uh, and maybe the doggy dog thing was, was kind of like a dovetail too. Uh, Perhaps, yes. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, we were bringing, bringing in A&R guys like, uh, like Miles Leonard, who were not necessarily from a rock uh, background. Um, so, and, and, and I, I just think Case felt uh, if you're, you know, you, you've got to have a broader base than, than only focus on metal because metal, however popular it may have stayed um, for a long time, there were changes starting to emerge. You know, was it as, was it going to be popular forever? Maybe not. So you've got to uh, spread your wings somewhat and and diversify in, in your in, kind of like in your product range. Mm, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Well, in the midst of this. Um... You're gonna to have to tell me about Toy Shop. Toy Shop. Toy Shop was um, a Brazilian uh, Brazilian act. Um, they had their pop single that Case uh, loved. This was one of his. Uh, I'm gonna write it the truth now because he loved that that uh, single so much. He he wrote. He just said that we have to make this has to be a hit. I want this. The, si the single. Okay, so hang on. I think the album's the, t the record is. Sorry, the artist is Toy Shop. Yeah. I think the record is called Party Up, and I think the single is called Follow Me. There is so little reference to this in the, the zeitgeist of, say, collector's markets and things like that. Um, I'm just going to check Discogs to see if there's anything of anything of substance. Um, Party Up, five versions on Roadrunner Records, 1997. Uh, released US, Poland, Japan, and the Czech Republic. 
uh yeah and that's it that's all you see there's there's no like there's no um images of like the liner notes or anything it's just the cover yeah i, I don't even remember the, the single the track being being called that and i, I don't remember how the, the the band was signed probably out of the um brazilian office because uh, we, we had eight men, uh, eight, men eight, eight people working for us in uh, in, in Brazil uh, at some point, an office in Sao Paulo, and, and we had a, like a, a radio uh, promoter working in in uh, Rio de Janeiro. I mean, that was just one of the best trips ever going down there. And it's, uh, who had no one had an office in or two offices in Brazil? And I think those guys, um, uh, they were every office we had were given a kind of A and R responsibility: go and sign acts from that territory. And they came up with uh, a I believe. Um, but anyway, his, his case saying, I demand that this is you know, we, world domination. I believe in this, make it happen. And it didn't really happen anywhere outside Italy, where we had this um, runaway success. We were top 20. We, just, we had just uh, acquired the arcade uh, company. Um, so we'd gone from being, uh, you know, in a manner of speaking, little roadrunner to this big, um, one of the biggest independents around at the time. We're now rock and pop because of the arcade acquisition. And uh, the guy in Italy, Paolo D'Alessandro, um, gave Case his hit record with Toy Shop. Um, and that's made Case's ears perk up because we, we didn't even know Paolo at the, t- Paolo at the time. And, and his case saying, well, if he could make a hit out of uh, Toy Shop, Bring him in. He's obviously uh, um, got talents. And Paolo joined our Roadrunner International operation in Amsterdam, um, literally months later, you know, months after the toy shop success. And not just uh, he didn't just achieve chart success, but he got he got toy shop in a Bade Das. I don't know if that's a brand that you're familiar with. It's kind of like a shower gel um, uh, product. In he got it in a Bade Das commercial. So not only had we charted it, but it was on. It was a major commercial in Italy, as the kind of like the, the underground, the the uh, the underscore to that uh, commercial. It's just such a weird, considering like the record market, because a lot of a lot of like my research is based around like I've said it a few times before. When I was first looking at Roadrunner, I was like, let's get everything, let's get everything from the very start all the way to 2012. And let's only find the direct signings because while the licensing stuff is interesting and there is a big angle to it, I discovered and I probably should have given it more attention. <clears throat> the value of Roadrunner as a brand is it? its direct signings and those flagship acts. So let's see exactly what they were up to. And you just see a load of oddities like this where there's, and I, again, when you're looking at the flagship acts, there's such well recorded instances from collectors. Uh, when certain things are misprinted, for example, I think I think it might have been KLCD where there was like forty thousand records that they had to you had to destroy because the liner notes spelt out something derogatory towards Epic um, or something like that. There's, I love those little stories, and the, the the collector's market's full of them. But there's just some where there's fucking nothing, and Toy Shop was one of them. And I was yeah. like, what the hell is this? It's, yeah, it's, it was just a bubble for uh, uh, it seemed like a two months where nobody really yeah. Case is running the troops. He, um, you know, nine times out of ten, everybody got behind him. But when it came to toy shop, people were like, okay, <laughs> this is way too outside of our comfort zone. We just don't get it. But Paolo uh, did. Yeah. What do you say about destroying, you know, uh, booklets? 
I think we had to destroy 500,000 Slipknot booklets at some point because of the spelling mistake on the liner notes. 500,000. No. Um, oh, no. I think it said slip compt rather than. <laughs> and compt in Dutch is the word for ass. So um, there was like a double irony there. Um, yeah, that, that stuff happened um, more often than you'd want it to. Chuck stuff in the bin. Are there any other outlier stories, such as Toy Shop, especially in this period, sort of 95 to 2000, where there's just some weird oddity which everyone gets behind? Well, the whole arcade acquisition uh, takeover was was a totally weird oddity because we were, you know, as a company, quite quite happily going up, you know, going with being successful with with rock access. So we had some diversification in some of the territories like the UK, like you just mentioned, Bennett and a few other bands that. Um, we were amazingly unsuccessful with. Um, and then along comes uh, Arcade, Case goes, I want, I want this company. Yeah, it's up for sale. I want it because it's, it's, it's a perfect match for us. We're establishing all these strongholds, but we're not in Scandinavia, we're not in Italy, we're not in Spain. Um, Arcade is. They do music that we don't do or we don't do well with. Uh, let's make this happen. And okay, at this point, it's, it's mostly a pop compilation outfit. Yeah, and they, I mean, they've had big successes in, in the Netherlands and some local successes in countries like Sweden with, with uh, Lutricia McNeil was a huge pop act in Sweden. They've had successes in Germany with all sorts of pop acts. So, you know, furthering on from the kind of like the Buddhist uh, period, 94, 95, with some pop hits. It's only five years later that the arcade uh, takeover happens. And it's kind of it kind of like falls into place because it's in 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 the same line line of thought of like diversification consolidation. Case always felt that if you're going to make any kind of impact or impression on the majors, you've got to consolidate the the independent strength. Um, and that's what uh, uh, he uh, believed we would we would do with, with the arcade uh, uh, takeover. It felt very weird for a lot of the uh, DNA of the company that the Americans totally did not get it um, because they didn't get the the, the music, uh, the uh, the the personalities didn't really fit. He was an arcade guy. He was a roadrunner guy. Um, that was um, it was a weird anomaly. We we as roadrunner moved into the arcade offices in Holland. Our offices weren't big enough to accommodate arcade. There were 88 people working in arcade at the time. There were 21 roadrunner people. So it's almost like a reverse takeover. We moved into their office and we were the, we were the purchasing company. It was really, really uh, strange. Um, Headcount reduction? Massively, yeah. The bloodbath. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, Shit. it wasn't a good time. And also, um, uh, shortly after the acquisition, um, Mainly the arcade side was, was just bleeding losses. It was, uh, I mean, it was an unmitigated disaster. We had to close offices down. We had to, one or two of them went, um, were about to go belly up and we managed to find buyers for, for those uh, companies up in, in, in Nordic, in Scandinavia. Um, Italy, we closed down, but brought Paolo into the Dutch office. Spain, we continued with for quite some time with a good degree of success. They were doing um, Spanish pop and Spanish music. Which is kind of a weird fit with, with Roadrunner as well. And we were trying to get the Roadrunner acts um, to do well through the Spanish company or the Scandinavian company, but those fits weren't, you know, in reverse. Were not always the best. 
Before the arcade takeover, we might in Scandinavia be with a strong metal distributor. But because you want to get the synergies, you stop with the distributor and you bring it into the arcade fold. But those guys didn't get rock, just like we didn't get pop. So it was a weird fit. And um, ultimately, I guess, you know, in, in retrospect, um, maybe we shouldn't have done it. Um, it's, the case is no stranger to compilations. Roadrunner is chucking out compilations every second it can, but through promo CDs and things like that. So it kind of stands to reason that you'd think the Venn diagram crossed in a way, from at least an administrative point of view. Yeah, the difference being Arcade was doing TV compilations, so heavily TV marketing them, um, and we were, you know, we were not in that game. So we did a lot of compilations, but it was all, you know, fairly uh, uh, low key stuff. Compared to arcade, those. So, what year is the arcade acquisition? 1999, 24th of December. Is this driven by the Edel stuff? This is driven by it, isn't it? This is this is like a background. I'm trying to piece together the the background context with the Edel stuff. Yeah. I don't know how closely the the handshake is between. Edel, Roadrunner, and then Arcade being a child of that. Well, not necessarily a child, more of a, an adopted child of that. Yeah, true. So we had an, we had an uh, Edel um, joint venture prior to the Arcade takeover in the Benelux. We were, I think we were called oh. Roadrunner, uh, Edel Roadrunner Benelux uh, at some point. This is around 96, 97 okay. um, for the Dutch. So we had a joint office in Holland. Edel was already expanding massively. This is before their, uh, their public offering, before they went to the stock exchange. Let's, let's take a step back and go, well, who are Ezel in, this, in, this, um, in the industry at the time? And why did Case want to do a joint venture with them? Um, I, th- I, I don't know how the, the meeting of um, minds transpired, but it was Case and Michael Hunches. I mean, they were, they were great. Um, I mean, yeah, they were kindred spirits. Michael was doing really well in Germany, and, and he must have noticed our success because we had this number one in Germany and other chart successes in Germany. And, you know, he was in, running an independent label as well. He was a great promotion guy, and his label was picking up a lot of steam. Um, those guys must have just come together at some point and gone, hey, let's work together, and why don't we start in, in the Benelux, where Case wasn't maybe getting the, the type of success he he demanded from from that territory. Adel had pop success, we had rock success, he thought that might be a good marriage. So we had this this joint company for two or three years uh, in the Benelux. And um, then fast forward into the arcade takeover. Casey just sold his publishing company, Roadster, to to BMG. Um, How does does Roadster differ from All Blacks, by the way? uh, Publishing, so song publishing, song publishing. Um, all Blacks is master rights. So all Got recordings it. and the other. That's why we see All Blacks on Spotify and we don't see Roadster on Spotify. Correct. Yes, exactly right. Um, so fast forward, um, that Roadster sale had just happened in 1999. There's, there's a bunch of money sitting on the, yeah, sitting in a bank account. Um, Case never liked money sitting on a bank account. He always wanted to reinvest it. The arcade proposition uh, came along and um, we went for it. It could only happen if we had outside investment, because um, the roadster money, whatever else we had, uh, you know, bank loans. We're not going to be able to um, finance that rather large takeover. 
So in comes uh, Adel again. Michael Heinches uh, said, I will, um, you know, I'll, I'll take a share of the company uh, after the fact. And in the meantime, I will finance, help you finance whatever you need to make the deal happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were simultaneously negotiating with Adel while negotiating with the, uh, the vendors of Arcade. So the whole thing had to sort of come together at the same time. This is all at the end of 99. Um, we knew we were going to be able to get the money from um, uh, Adel to, to finance the deal. The deal with Arcade uh, came together. The company got bought. It's, again, it's worth mentioning at the time that Rodron is still not, it's not like a massive money-making entity. It's successful, but it's not got capital to buy other companies outright. No. Exactly. I mean, you don't, I mean, you don't, no, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, you, you'd want to go to, a, you, usually when you're doing a takeover, as you know, working in the banking world, you go to a bank and say, look, this is what we want to do. Can, will you lend us? We, this, is, this is our profit. How, how much will you lend us to, to be able to do this? finance this takeover and, and banks um, tend to help you with that. And unless you're a record company, unless you're an independent record company, then they go, sorry, we don't get this business model. Um, we're not doing it. So the, the banks only would only go so far and nowhere far enough. So we needed a strategic investor in the form of an ADL because the majors weren't, we weren't even sat at the table with the majors at the time. Um, the most powerful cash-rich independent at the time was Adel, and that was the the the, the go-to place uh, mm-hmm. for Case, because um, he was just as into doing that that deal as as, uh, as Case was. Yeah, yeah. So car- carry on. I interrupted to get context. So we're now in January 2000, uh, 2000 and uh, the deal's been done. Um, shortly afterwards, we start uh, encountering all sorts of problems. I mean, in a, in a takeover, there's, there's this is part called reps and warranties, where, where the company says, we're doing okay, we've got no lawsuits, we've got no tax uh, burdens, we've got no royalty problems. The, the arcade um, takeover, I think the, uh, the disclosures um, were about 10 pages long. There, was a, there were a lot of problems in the company, a lot of lawsuits, a lot of former employees suing the company, artists trying to get out of their deals. Um, there were at least they're honest. Yeah, yeah well, it had to be. When it, there, were, there were liens on, on, on assets, it was uh, it was actually a bloody mess. Um, but here is his case going. I don't give a damn. I want this company. We'll work it out. I've got the right team in place. We'll solve all these problems uh, down the road. But I mean, they they bore heavily on. Um, on, on our, our time and, and our capital. Because uh, you don't just settle a bunch, you don't just settle 20 lawsuits uh, without some, some sort of damage to the, to the bottom line. So, um, and at the same time, we were bleeding losses in some of the, uh, some of the uh, arcade territories. Um, so things weren't all uh, that great in, in the year 2000. This continued for quite a long period, this kind of like malaise we, we, we were in. Um, until we get, and then we get to this point where Adel was supposed to invest in our company. They, 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 you know, sort of like forward us some some money in a, in a kind of like a bridge loan type of capacity, um, and that was all supposed to be converted into Michael actually investing in Rover. That investment never happened 
because they will hit the rocks at some point as well. You know, they were one of the biggest, if well, they were the biggest independents uh, uh, for a time, probably uh, late 90s, early, nor, you know, early 2000. I think Edel had a market capitalization of 1 billion Deutschmarks. They were buying companies all over the place or financing the purchases of companies in America, all over the place, heavily marketing their, uh, marketing their acts, doing loads of stuff on TV, the really expensive stuff. But they had loads of money. And it ran out. And they um, they were up um, Shit's Creek without a paddle at some point. And uh, Michael had to turn to case and say, I can't do that investment in the company. And I need my money back. And I need it in 30 days. And there was no uh, there was no option. You know, it was it was make or break at that point. Yeah. yeah. Now early 2001. How much did he owe? Just to get an idea of the gravity of this, this, this money he needs to give back. Is there a figure, or is it, or is there an analogy you can throw at me? Yeah, I mean, it was probably. Uh, it's look, it's twenty years ago now. So um, without um, about twenty million euros, we had to pay back in old money. So whatever yeah. worth in today's money, maybe thirty million euros, we had to come up with. And if, if Kiss just did it outright, Roadrunner's over. It was over, yeah. There was a point where, um, you know, we were getting, I had a fax machine next to my, my desk and there, was, there were labels just faxing all the time, like, where's my money? Well, you've got it. Where's the advance? And we weren't paying anyone. And I remember going into Case saying, I've had 15 faxes from this guy, Case. We've got to pay him. And Case said, look, what would you rather have? Your salary at the end of the month or pay this guy? And I left the room again. So we were just holding people off. Um, and that's when he was uh, so focused, uh, so single-mindedly um, in survival mode. And he rallies the troops again. It was a small team in Amsterdam of the CFO, Ian Wim uh, was, was involved with the current CFO, um, myself, uh, one or two external advisors. And he said, you guys, I don't know how you're gonna do it, but get me 10, 15 million gills at the time, whatever, call it euros by the end of the month, and we're now on the first day of that month. Um, I mean, that was just an unbelievable challenge and, and almost an unattainable challenge. But we did it. You know, selling catalogs, selling, settling lawsuits that would free up some money, um, getting advances in from distributors, pulling out all the stops. Whatever we could do to generate income, um, we did, just to be able to pay some of the bills. Uh, the bank was also, we had we had a bank credit at the time. The bank was also knocking at the door saying, this is the last month we're going to pay the salaries unless the um, the credit balance is, uh, is down. Um, so we were probably for a month or two, just around the clock. We never, I don't think we ever went home. There was a point where we were just sleeping in the office. Pizzas were being delivered at 10 o'clock on Friday night. Um, it's a good thing most of us were either not married um, or uh without too many drag coefficients at the time because uh, you know our partners were, if we had a partner we just see nothing of us we had to save this company we almost lost our shirts we had to uh, this money had to go back to Adel we had to generate income but there had to there had to be another rabbit out of the hat because it wasn't enough to generate that money and, and pay a little bit of the bank and pay Adel a little a bit of their money back it all had to go back and then you fast forward to the IDJ uh, deal that was the day before we, that was the, before we come to that is what's the 
what's the culture in this month? Is it is, is are you a secret enclave of people who know what's going on? Or are all the offices like something's happening over in Amsterdam, boys? I'm sure that was happening. I'm sure people all over the, the world were saying, why can't we pay anyone? But it was three, four people in, in the Amsterdam office who were um, who were really in the know. Um, and the rest were guessing. And we weren't, we were keeping tight lipped about how bad it was. I think now, even now, if you ask people, do you do you have any idea how close Roadrunner came to uh, its own demise? They go, really? I had no idea. It was touch and go for, for a while. Yeah, which leads us straight into IDJ. Yeah, and that's the that's the amazing flip side to this because underlying all of this, there was an unbelievable value in the company uh, of of assets, of, of recordings, of potential uh, uh, successes in the future. So here's a company that's on its knees that is worth so much still, um, and I suppose that happens a lot in 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 companies that uh, that, that fold um, that might not have had to have folded. So we are our, our um, yeah our deus was uh, uh, was IDJ in the form of uh, Leo Cohen case case and Leo um, uh, yeah kind of like uh, did that did that deal um, where where case sells half of his company um, and the valuation of the company at that time was well above what we had to pay uh, Hodges and others um, so. We were saved. However, case had lost half his shares. Was it 50% or was it smack on 50? Wow. It was 50%, which is an interesting one because um, normally majors want 50% and they share. So they've got the, the majority or, or more. Yeah. It was 50-50 and case had the um, the running of the company. And that's the, that is the, um, the confidence uh, that Lear had in Case, like you, we might have 50% of the company, but we shouldn't touch anything. Case is in charge. He's got to have his team um, and be able to run his company as he sees fit, have financial control, um, be, be pulling the strings as he always did. We shouldn't touch that. This is a, a success story um, that we shouldn't um, in any way, shape or form try to limit. Wow. So imagine being someone on one of the satellite offices who's just like, we're not getting paid. Something really weird is happening. And then they walk in one day and it's Case and uh, Leo Cohen shaking hands and thinking, oh shit, what the fuck's been going on? Funny. Let's leave it there. It's a, uh, sorry, actually, go yeah. on. No, I was going to say, it could have, uh, Leo was the, the, the one that wanted the deal the most. And that's why I went to NJ in the end. But he wasn't, that wasn't the only label looking um, at Roadrunner. Roadrunner at the time, because when we put the feelers out to every major, and every major came and took a look, they did their due diligence. There was a time when, in the Dutch office, in, a, in um, where we were at the time, in a place called Narden, where there were so many suits walking around the office, though half the time we didn't know whether they were our advisors or whether it was a team of lawyers coming in doing due diligence for um, uh, Sony, or was it BMG this time, or was it? Uh, or was it uh, Universal? Um, they, they all came and did. Uh, they all came and looked, and I think we got uh, maybe. Uh, I think we got offers from everybody, um, but the one that Case felt best about was was IDJ because they were going to leave him to do it his way. They wanted Slipknot and Nickelback, and they knew they had to leave Roadrunner to do everything else. Yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly right, and it's it's funny because. Um, 
remember reading some of the due diligence reports from these these uh, these majors, um, and everybody was focused on on Slipknot at the time because we'd already had success with Slipknot, and it looked like that success success was was going to continue. Mm. And one of the labels, and I, I it might have been I, I, I don't even know, but one of the labels said, "Now hang on, this is band Nickelback." that band is going to be absolutely huge. Um, and maybe with the exception of Case, everyone went, really? Okay. Um, and, and they were right. I don't know if they were the acquiring company in the end. But that was certainly the focus. Yeah, if you have Slipknot and you have Nickelback, then you're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. And there's all this other stuff, you know, in the tailwind of these these big acts that's uh, that coming, you know, coming down the pipeline as well. What a strange three years between Nickelback's The State coming out in 98 through to the acquisition. Because then Slipknot making make waves around the same time, then 99 comes around. Yeah, it's just that, that three-year period is just a very, very intensive um, give and take on like a massive scale, isn't it? It's crazy. There's, there's a view that if, um, if we hadn't done the arcade acquisition, um, I, I pretty much subscribe to this view. Actually, if we hadn't done the arcade acquisition, we'd sold Roadster. We had, you know, we were we were um, with plenty of capital um, in the company. Take away the the the, um, the acquisition, we wouldn't have to have uh, borrowed any money from the Able Group or banks or whatever else. Um, those successes wouldn't have to have been shared with anyone. Case would have had 100% of his shares. Um, yeah, we would have, we would presumably have attracted more acts of that ilk, you know, bigger rock act, rock acts, um, and the thing could have just been absolutely ginormous. Um, but it was kind of dragged down for a period by this by the arcade uh, acquisition. However, having said that, in the end, you know, we had um, our seven um, big years, uh, sort of from two thousand. To 2003, right up until the the, the sale of the company, um, to uh, or the first the first tranche sold to, to Warner's. I mean, the, the Nickelback, call it the Nickelback years, they were so incredibly profitable, and it wasn't just Nickelback. There were several acts that were doing fantastically at the time. The company was going through. We, we had years that was 20 million dollar profit per year, bottom line profit per year, day that period. Pre recession so, as well. Sorry. Pre-recession, pre-digital era. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Let's leave it there then, because I want to. I'm trying to unpack a bit more of the 2000s because I've, I've got a skew perspective what with having lived it. So I want to make sure it's um, it's all above board. But thank you very much. I know it's some of that.